Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Recovery Talk, a podcast from the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. I'm your host, Shannon Roberts. Each month, we'll be talking with an expert in the field, discussing substance use challenges, resources to assist individuals with the substance use challenge and or their families, and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services. This month, we spoke with Kim Gannon and Emily Passman, authors of a recent article in the Journal of Substance Use and Addiction Treatment, entitled, Knowing or Not Knowing, Living as Harm Reductionist in 12-Step Recovery. With us, they shared their experiences navigating recovery through 12-step programs, their embrace of harm reduction values, their professional research, and the ongoing journey of reconciling these concepts and experiences for themselves. And without further ado, let's get talking. I'm here with Kim and Emily, authors of a recent article in the Journal of Substance Use and Addiction Treatment titled, Knowing or Not Knowing, Living as Harm Reductionists in 12-Step Recovery. Kim and Emily, welcome. Yeah. Um, so I, my name is Kim Gannon. I am a third-year PhD student uh, in health policy at the Yale School of Public Health. My research interests include understanding where um, the war on drugs is still alive and well in our criminal legal system, particularly in the age of fentanyl. Um, I also research ways that religion and spirituality intersect with substance use treatment, which in large part involves 12-step programs. Um, I'm also a person in long-term recovery, former drug user. Um, Not that I necessarily endorse this hierarchy, but I started being in recovery in 2015. So it's been almost eight years. And yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Emily? Yeah. So I'm Emily Passman. I am finishing up my PhD in social work at Wayne State University. I'll be moving on to a research position at the University of Michigan soon. And my research is really around substance use and stigma. Um, I'm really interested in research that kind of moves our substance use continuum of care toward greater integration of services. Um, Prior to my PhD program, I worked in peer recovery support services. So I worked for several years as coordinator for Michigan State University's collegiate recovery program. Uh, I also worked on the evaluation of a peer support program for returning citizens. So I have lots of respect for the value of peer delivered services. Um, I am also like Kim, a person in long-term recovery. I recently celebrated 11 years abstinent from alcohol and other drugs. Um, I was introduced to 12-step through the courts. Um, It was kind of mandated for me at that time, but I will say that I was also ready. I had kind of already made the decision that abstinence was the best option for me, and I found a lot of personal success and fulfillment through that path. Awesome. Thank you both for sharing that those pieces of yourself. Um, I guess yeah. to start us off, what prompted you to start this conversation? I know the article seems to be like a point in time, right? But it seems to be an ongoing conversation. So what prompted you both? Oh, um, it absolutely was. So um, it's worth just giving a little bit of background on how we met. Um, so we actually met, the first time we met uh, was in a 12-step room Um, I was in the back crying about something. I don't remember what I was crying about. It was, uh, a couple months in, um, Emily approached me very kindly and comforted me and also happened to mention because she knew that I was a student at, uh, Michigan State University. I was an undergrad at the time 
that she was a peer worker putting together a collegiate recovery program. Um, and she invited me to attend. And we have very much been on this journey together processing um, the uh, stories that we've we've heard in 12-step rooms, especially we started our PhDs at similar times as well. What got uh, us started or me started? So I, uh, especially in the beginning of my recovery, I was excited about 12-step recovery uh, with the evangelism with the evangelism of an evangelist. Um, I'm, I'm going to probably draw a lot of parallels between like the religion spirituality pace, uh, space. I, um, and I don't say that as like a dirty word. Um, I am a religious person. Um, I have seen through my research and through personal experience and the experience of others that that's incredibly um, helpful um, and something to be embraced. In fact, sometimes I wish 12-step programs would lean into that a little bit more. Uh, controversial opinion. Um, and you know, I realized particularly at the beginning as abstinence really started to work for me, you know, AA, uh, I primarily participated in AA. So if, if I use um, AA and 12-step uh, interchangeably, that's my bad. Um, I realized very quickly that they put a lot, a lot of weight um, and authority um, and generalizability in the lived experience of individuals for whom the program works for as like a source of knowledge. So I was very like, um, I felt like in some ways I was put a little bit on a pedestal um, compared to members that it didn't necessarily work for. Um, and that that was a little, I think, strange for me. I think along the way there were um, over the years, a couple of things where it's like, that doesn't quite sound right. Like, um, most people in the rooms I didn't find were opposed to, you know, the psychiatric medication I was taking, but they were opposed to the medications for opioid use disorder that other people were taking. Um, it seemed like a strange, what do you call that? A uh, dichotomy that's uh, not necessarily fair. A couple other things happened along the way. I started to raise my voice and be like, hey, that's not right. Um, I started studying stigma against MOUD um, in uh, my classes once I came to this School of Public Health. Um, I got a couple of 12-step members when I shared my first paper that gave me some feedback like, well, people who use MOUD should really just sit down and shut up like the rest of us, like you and I did, right? <laughs> and it was, they said it with like a kind of authority that was like, you get it, right? Of course you get it. And it's like, I think it was jarring because it was like, first of all, what adult talks to another adult that way under any circumstances? And two, I am not a part of this. And three, that's very much part of the problem. And I also got a little bit of like silent majority type of feedback too, like, listen, I'm not here to be a social justice warrior in recovery. Um, I'm here to take care of me in my own recovery. And again, like the people, the people who are saying things to me like that, like what troubled me a little bit is they didn't seem to have moral qualms. And, you know, I brought some of these things up and 
in particular to Emily. We uh, really had the opportunity to process this stuff together. Um, and uh, we ended up both getting exposed to harm reduction. And here we are. Yeah, I can add that, you know, kind of, as Kim mentioned, we were kind of going through similar experiences in different places. But at the same time, as we started our PhD programs, um, I think like prior to my PhD program, I consider myself pretty open minded about different pathways to recovery, but I really just never had a ton of exposure to anything other than abstinence-based recovery. And um, that kind of changed during my first year of my PhD program when I helped my advisor with a study that took place at a methadone treatment program. And that was just such a transformative experience for me because I really saw kind of the impact of stigma on services and clients and I honestly realized that I had had a lot of my own misconceptions about methadone and the people that take it. Um, and it was just really helpful to kind of have Kim to process this with kind of this tension that we experienced between what we had been taught and what worked for us versus what our research was telling us is some of the most effective interventions. And um, I think that's really what we wanted to kind of get across with this article is that I mean, both can be true, like 12 step helped us, but at the same time, it's just not, it's not for everyone. And, and we can, we can all be supportive of, of that. Nice. I, I'm loving the kind of the duality of you were experiencing the tension together and just like in a, in a personal way, but then also for both of you your research was kind of validating all of that, right? Like it was this almost like this parallel deconstruction, reconstruction. That's really cool to me because I think one of the, one of the gaps in the field of recovery is kind of, or not gaps, but one of the big efforts in the field of recovery is bridging the gap between research and evidence-based practice and kind of this practice-based evidence. I mean, that's one of the mm -hmm. center of excellences, mm -hmm focus groups. Like we realize that's a bit of a sticky wicket and we need to work really intentionally to bridge that gap. Yeah. Um, yes, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, if you, if you look at the history of, I'm a policy person, so you'll hear me talking about stuff like this. Of Jump in. <laughs> if, if you, if you look at the history of substance use disorder treatment in the U S you'll see, um, as early as the early 20th century with the Harrison Narcotics and Tax Act, um, enforced, in fact, talk about not a public health approach by the Department of the Treasury. Um, they, they essentially created disincentives for medical professionals, uh, cases for liability so strong that not only were um, methods of like... Uh, maintenance, um, so medications for opioid use disorder at the time, locked out of the treatment system, but individuals who struggled with addiction were almost themselves just completely locked out of the treatment system, um, shipped off to federal prisons, federal drug farms um, to be experimented on. Certainly, you know, our perspectives and lived experiences were far from taken into account. So by the time 12-step programs like Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous really emerged, um, 
all we really had was our lived experience and these kinds of grassroots things. And so when you see the 12-step movement evolving kind of in parallel with the way we think about medicine and the way we think about evidence, it really does make sense that so much stock is put into lived experience, uh, particularly in 12-step rooms. That's one of the things that uh, I think makes the 12-step programs wonderful. It really does elevate the uh, lived experiences of people, particularly people in the in-group for whom 12-step has worked for. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, when are we going to really start making it a priority to integrate evidence and think about our experiences and the larger scale of people we don't always see in the rooms, people that are sometimes kept out because of stigma that we're perpetuating? This is all so important to think about. And it's something uh, I think I speak for Emily as well. It's something we think about all the time. Yeah, I'll just add that. Like a lot of my, as I said, my practice is a practice background was in peer delivered recovery support services. And, and I truly believe in the value of that lived experience and, and the role of, you know, peers working in the field is so unique because they are expected to draw on that lived experience in their role. Um, But, you know, it gets tricky because most of our substance use services in the country are abstinence-based. Most of our peers that are working in the field have lived experience in abstinence-based treatment and recovery. And, um, you know, the peers that I've talked with through my research, they really understand the importance of like promoting client autonomy and supporting many pathways to recovery. Um, But at the same time, I hear that they kind of struggle to balance what they're learning in their professional training and the scientific evidence with their lived experience, because this is the way that changed, you know, that saved their life and what they've been taught is the only way. Um, So I think this is a really important conversation for peers working in the field. Um, And it's going to be important for peers to kind of work to process and manage these biases that that impact services. Yeah. And again, like Mm. the parallels to religious communities are huge. Um, It's not a desire to or, or it's not necessarily a desire to club somebody over the head with an ideology. It truly comes from the fact of like this changed my life. This gave me so much color and meaning. And look at all these doors that opened. Um, I just want to share this with everybody I know and um, not to compromise it in any sort of way. Um, but again, it's it's tension, it's struggle. Yeah. Yeah, that that's actually one of the major highlights you both made in your article, this, you know, call to action for 12-step programs to further accept harm reduction as well as medication and other pathways to recovery. What would you, being in this place in your own personal journey, reconciling all these things, what would you offer to current folks in 12-step programs who are maybe just starting off on their journey of like understanding this nuance and really navigating that? Emily, you want to take this? I guess I can start. I can take a stab at that one. Um, (laughs) I think I would... I don't know. I see it as a member of a 12-step program. I see kind of my responsibility to just be um, 
respectful to people and kind. And, um, you know, for me, I know this is what worked for me, but, you know, through my years in recovery and through my research, like I, I understand that this doesn't work for everyone. So um, I'm not going to tell anyone what to do. I'm not going to shame anyone for, you know, what's working for them. And I think as 12 step members too, we need to remember that like people remember how they're Mm -hmm. treated in the rooms. And, and for many of us, um, harm reduction is a pathway to abstinence. It doesn't have to be. Um, but for many it is, you know, I think personally for me, it was, I don't, I think a person, I think it'd be hard to find a person that didn't try a form of harm reduction before becoming abstinent, because why would you, why would you give up everything if, you know, like the, if you could reduce your negative consequences without giving up everything. So, I mean, that was the reality for me. And I think, you know, by shaming and and stigmatizing people that are coming into the rooms using medication or trying harm reduction, maybe using cannabis, whatever they're doing that is working for them at that time. Um, we, uh, you know, if we shame them, like they might never come back, you know, if they someday want 12 step abstinence based recovery. So that's something I try to remember. So, yeah, for sure. Thinking about, you know, 12 step members who are at the very, um, beginning of their journey of deconstruction again it's crazy because um we talk a lot um in especially progressive christian circles about what it means to deconstruct and reconstruct um i would the assumptions that i would consider interrogating first um are the assumptions that my experience generalizes um you know i know For example, for myself, I am a white affluent woman who, when I came into treatment, had access to specialty, or when I came into recovery, had access to specialty treatment, uh, things like that. Um, Given that AA um, 12-step programs uh, interact so much with religion and spirituality, it really did help that I grew up in a relatively healthy religious tradition that didn't rub me quite the wrong, uh, as much the wrong way as it could have. Um, people in the rooms when I walked in looked like me. Um, I ended up, um, you know, it's always an ongoing narrative, uh, but I ended up having a very clean narrative that could be really well, um, I think, uh, summarized into a neatly packaged what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, that's just not true for everybody. Um, and, you know, translating that, like, cognitive idea into more of a... Uh, how I interact with the world and other 12-step members. I noticed this uh, very common thread um, when I visit 12-step meetings even just today. Um, It can be very common to fall victim to the trope of, you know, on the surface claiming to speak from experience, um, but very much implying the opposite, implying advice, um, implying that my experience does generalize to others. So I've had people look at me, um, it's a podcast, so you can't necessarily see my facial expressions, um, you know, express a dissenting opinion or a dissenting experience of mine and 
particularly the more, um, I don't know, established members of the rooms will be like, well, I learned that recites common passage from the big book and, you know, gives me this look that's like, this is sacred truth. Um, and those implications and those facial expressions, like, you know, we're human beings. That's a huge part of the way we communicate. And that is honestly um, the the message that really gets um, perpetuated. Um, again, like, people are pretty good at not saying it, um, but not quite as good as not implying it. Like, well, we... Alcoholics and addicts, uh, those who can see me on the screen can see the very heavy air quotes that I put around that have very similar experiences. We sure do have a lot in common, so fill in the blanks. Um, that needs to be interrogated. Mm. How have you seen that done well in certain rooms? The uh, interrogation, you mean? Yeah. Or have you? Hmm. I mean, I can talk to things that I have done personally. Um, and I would say, like, I have seen this done in the rooms. And I do know of, you know, safe people and safe meetings. And there are a lot of good open minded people, um, you know, in the in the 12 step programs. Um, you know, some ways I like to kind of challenge the status quo and push back against the stigma that we sometimes see is um, especially with people that are, I don't know, in AA, we call them big book thumpers. Mm -hmm. So people that are very serious about like sticking to uh, the words of the official literature. I like to direct people to places in the literature that support a harm reduction approach. Um, you know, there's places in the Alcoholics Anonymous big book that say we do not have a monopoly on recovery, um, that members should seek professional advice from doctors and psychiatrists. Um, there's also this, um, you know, a whole paragraph about all of the different harm reduction methods that people have tried to control their drinking. You know, they say, here are the methods we have tried, switching from liquor to beer, only drinking on mm -hmm. weekends. Like th that's all harm reduction. And mm -hmm. everyone, when you read that passage, everyone says, oh, yep, 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 I've done mm -hmm. that. Um, so I, I like to point people to places in the literature that support this as a valid, valid approach. And I think following up with that, um, you know, unfortunately... Um, Emily and I can't be in every room. Um, and I, <laughs> I, I don't want to be like too self-congratulatory because, uh, there are people all over the country who are doing things like this, but when you, when you zoom out and you think about the system, like, um, when you're walking in to your first meeting for the first time, um, you're not going to know who those people are. And in fact, sadly, a lot of those people are... We see this dynamic happen all the time in group dynamics and religious dynamics. Um, there's a silent majority phenomenon where the people who uh, tend to hold more um, nuanced and moderate views on things like harm reduction tend to also be the people who don't shout their views across the room. Um, usually more extreme voices speak a lot louder. Though if I'm brand new, if I am a newcomer, I... I don't know. I can't differentiate. I only know what I hear. 
Um, so rooms that have done this well have been rooms who are not afraid with people who are not afraid to combat this that silent majority. So speaking up in meetings when somebody says something that is anti-medication, um, chairing a meeting and, you know, gently uh, or more directly reminding people that our traditions tell us not to take um, a position on outside issues and be willing to take the inevitable flack that you may have to take when you say things like that. Sharing positively myself about medications and interaction with um, doctors and things like that. And hearing other people do the same. I, I have seen this done well. Um, I have seen people many, like... Uh, I have seen people successfully do this with in a way that feels principled to them, not quote unquote compromising their serenity, um, not being afraid to engage in healthy conflict. You know, there's a there's a very big difference between um, picking a fight with somebody uh, for the sake of picking a fight or being combative and, you know, quote unquote, disrupting your serenity and um, being willing to do the hard work for the group and for that newcomer who may or may not be able to pick up on that dynamic. I will say that, you know, one of the things that Kim and I, as we were, you know, processing what we were experiencing in our research versus, you know, what we had been taught in the rooms, like one of the things that we kind of debated is like, is it ethical for us to continue being a part of 12-step culture that really stigmatizes medications for opioid use disorder and harm reduction approaches. And, uh, you know, because of some of the things we've seen, like we had to ask ourselves, like, is this something we want to be a part of? And, um, you know, something I thought about was my social work background and training. Um, you know, in my MSW program, we would have these conversations about is it ethical for a social worker to work in like the criminal legal system or child protective services? So places where they're not really necessarily promoting autonomy and, um, you know, dignity and worth, but kind of agents of control. And my kind of thought on that debate is like, maybe that's where social workers are most needed. You know, maybe you mm. have more power to change from the inside. And that is definitely something that keeps me coming back to 12 step other than, you know, the way that I personally benefit from it, but also that I think, especially because of the way 12 step traditions are, um, I think we have a lot more power to change the culture from within. And I feel like I do have a responsibility, um, you know, to be that non-judgmental, loving hand for people that are coming into the rooms, you know, traveling different pathways to recovery. So Emily is a mm. better person than me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I I have found that um, for now, um, and I always keep an open mind about stuff like this, for now, um, it has been so important for me to separate my identity and my recovery from um, the 12-step room. So I... What that looks like for me for now, and I think what's been really cool about this process is I have been taking it slowly and I have been able to keep an open mind and still still attend meetings. But with the curiosity and perspective of um, somebody who doesn't really identify as a member right now and um, 
watch these dynamics play out in real time, reach out to the people who, you know, I have an intuition or sense that might need some help combating those harmful messages. Though, um, personally, I I have been so frustrated um, that, and so honestly confused as I've been deconstructing that I'm not really in a place where I can always step up and, you know, have the the energy to do that exhausting, almost advocacy work to make the change from the inside. Mm-hmm. It's something I'm passionate about. It's something I'm really emotionally trying, I think, to get myself to a place where I can do it. I've seen it done really well. Um, my... <laughs> my my uh, partner is in the rooms right now and he's like the best person when it comes to stuff like this. Um, but right now, you know, to protect myself, to protect my sanity, it's, <laughs> I'm taking a step back. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know either of you super well, but I don't think that means that Emily is better than you, Kim. <laughs> that you were somehow worse I think (laughs) well Emily is fantastic yeah (laughs) I won't argue that well I will say I will say too like I've gotten to a place in my recovery where I really can like there's a saying in 12 step like take what what is it Kim take what you you need and leave the rest like take what you like and leave the rest and I feel like I after you know a decade have gotten to a place where I can do that. And that hasn't always been the case, you know, because so much of what is said in the rooms is said as if it is fact. And if you're not doing what you're told to be doing, then you're doing it wrong. And you are kind of shamed, whether it's overtly or, you know, more, uh, what's the opposite of overtly. Okay. Covertly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, I'm, and that's something that like, newcomers don't, I mean, that takes time. It took me a decade, right. To be able to just be comfortable doing, you know, what is right for me and not worrying about the judgment of other people in the rooms. Um, that's something that I don't think a lot of newcomers would have. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something we need, we need to be really careful about how we're, how we're treating the newcomer. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, that's, that's true in any sort of setting, right? The work of like filtering messaging and what's for you and what's not for you. That that's harder when you're approaching it as a new person versus a veteran, again, whatever space you're in or whatever content you're, you're taking in. Especially when you're new, when so much of the messaging that you're getting from 12 steps is like, your intuition is wrong. Um, hang it all up at the door. You know, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you will take these steps. You will follow these suggestions. Um, I struggled with that so much um, because I was fully sold on the idea that my intuition was wrong and I needed to like truly surrender my um, will to this group. And, you know, I think while that, while that kept me on the path for a while, it 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 was a hard message to deconstruct, and and my intuition was a hard thing to reclaim when I was, um, when I was starting to hear these things that you know just just felt wrong, um, 
I had a massive back and forth in my head that almost felt constant um, trying to figure out how to validate myself, wondering if I should be validating myself just all over the map. And it's hard. And I I feel like I'm in a decent place now, um, but, you know, still very, still very protective and uh, patient with myself in the process. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, that kind of leads me to one of the questions I was thinking about. So I think listeners know, and I can't remember if I told you all, but I'm not personally in recovery, but longtime ally Mm -hmm. of folks in recovery. So I didn't, I didn't grow up in a 12 step room. I am familiar with Al-Anon pretty intimately, but Hmm. um, so how can non, so back to my question that I've had is like, how can non-members of 12 step or allies or I don't, I don't want to say outsiders, that's pejorative, but mm-hmm. folks not in the room, how can they contribute to this conversation in a productive way? Well, um, actually, Emily and I were uh, speaking about this in preparation for coming on this podcast. And I think we, um, and Emily, please correct me if I'm wrong, but have differing opinions about how effective outsider pressure can can really be. Um I, um, now I put on my like more political organizing hat and I think about, um, the few avenues where outside voices may make a difference. Um, what comes to mind in particular are clinicians, though I think some of these can, um, really apply to any support person, um, really priming their loved one, um, mentally to understand that before before they even enter their first meeting, that you are going to go in there and you are going to hear a lot of charismatic lay people claiming to have a solution. By lay people, I mean just non-clinicians. Um, experiences that may really speak to you and people who may very much want what you have. And it's important to be open-minded to hearing new messages, giving it a try. Um, You know, in some ways, you know, it's free, it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere. Um, Giving it a try is is, uh, not a bad thing to do. Um, But it is so important to be open-minded because AA is famous for perpetuating misinformation, cults of personality. Um, these are not necessarily things that need to keep need to keep people out of the rooms. Um, but they are things like go in there and interpret these messages open-mindedly, but with a with critical thinking. Um, and that's that's where family members and clinicians can really extend their hand and be willing to be a resource, um, be willing to be like, if you have any questions about something you heard in the rooms, if things don't seem right, uh, come to me. We can talk about that. We can have an open dialogue. So that's clinicians and family members, especially when they've uh, established a relationship of trust. Um, what also comes to mind for clinicians in particular is You know, anytime um, I think about the informed consent process when I was working as a clinician and and as I work as a researcher, I was an EMT for a bit. Informed consent for 
anything, consent to treatment involves um, explaining the risks and benefits of treatment. And um, 12-step really shouldn't be different. And it's important to take seriously the risk, even though it's not a pharmaceutical intervention, the risks that come with entering AA rooms and messaging that from the get-go. Putting trust in the ability that the client with adequate support can sort through can sort through those messages, um, but explaining the risks and benefits, laying all the information out there. Um, what also comes to mind and zooming way out on the policy level is completely eliminating 12-step requirements from criminal legal and um, medical providing. Um, offering it as a resource to be interpreted uh, critically, but um, requirements where people are required to get sheets signed to be in the rooms um, is a practice that is long since overdue for removal. Yeah, I will just kind of, I totally agree with everything Kim said, and I'll just kind of balance that with like that 12 step can be very beneficial to people. And I think, I think we see both sides of the spectrum, especially with, um, you know, with clinicians and with friends and family members, like we have people that because it's so accessible, it's everywhere, it's free. There's no requirements or restrictions for people to join. Um, you can't say that a lot about about a lot of other substance use services. So we do have, you know, some providers that will just refer everyone to 12-step. But then you also, on the flip side, have providers that know that 12-step has a bad reputation, honestly, for like welcoming people that are taking medication for opioid use disorder, especially people that, you know, um, agonist medication providers, people that prescribe or work with people taking methadone or or buprenorphine, um, a lot of them don't like 12-step and won't refer people to 12-step. Um, and I think that, you know, we can, we need to have a little bit more nuance on both sides because, you know, like I've said, there are safe groups, there are safe people, and there's a lot of benefits of 12-step. You know, 12-step has, um, is a great source of social support, which is one of the most important predictors for success in recovery. Um, I was also reading something about how a lot of the 12-step teachings about, um, you know, how to deal with stress or cravings, it really mirrors what you would what you would um, be taught in cognitive behavioral therapy for addictions, which is one of CBT is one of our most evidence-based practices for addiction. Um, so I think, I think we can, we can, like Kim said, we can trust people that are kind of taking non-traditional pathways to recovery to sort through this information, prepare them for what they're going to experience in 12 step, but also recognize that, you know, if they are able to kind of process these things that are hearing that might kind of conflict with what's working with them, um, it can still be, it can still be an incredible source of support for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that balance, Emily. I think it's, mm -hmm. I think a lot of times in these conversations, it's easy to um, be a little bit, well, I don't want to say reductionist because that's, you know, we're talking about harm reduction, but ah. I mean, it's easy to be, <laughs> yeah, it's easy to be on that spectrum of like a thing is good or bad or attribute some existing stigma to an entire group or to be, you know, to fall prey to the fallacy of like, generalizing essentially. So I really appreciate that balance and yeah, not to invalidate 
the lives saved and the good work that 12-step programs are doing. For sure. Well, I know we are getting to the end of our hour, and I want to be respectful of everyone's time. I love at the end of the article how you point to, you know, you you talked about all these micro shifts and smaller scale changes that are necessary on an individual level, but also recognize the and acknowledge the importance of larger cultural and structural shifts. Do you want to talk a little bit about what like maybe the ideal looks like for you both on a large scale? I would love to talk about um I can speak particularly to I think large scale cultural changes that um are needed to combat um the overdose crisis especially in the age of fentanyl and other analogs that are turning our communities into bloodbaths um so I, I I put on my uh, I guess a little bit nerdy political economy hat, and um, I often talk about this a little bit. So AA twelve step programs really uh, pride themselves in um, tradition two, um, which is basically like uh, our group answers to but one ultimate authority, a loving God who may express ourselves himself themselves itself in our um group conscience herself um and uh so there's a lot of romanticization and i think if you look at aas 12 and 12 you will um you'll hear the phrase like organized anarchy or functional anarchy i can't remember the exact phrase but people really people really romanticize like oh it's this beautiful system where everybody works together but in any system that has um at its core direct democracy um so rule by majority you know it's the majority that wins and you know i can speak for uh the 12-step community that i got started in that majority was almost monolithically white um, older men, um, uh, cisgender, um, heterosexual, um, upper income, uh, who chose exclusively abstinence-based pathways to recovery. Um, so acknowledging that, you know, there may be a, um, there may be a governance structure that's better than tradition two. Um, and I know that's an extremely controversial thing to say. I one time, um, last, last year or so, maybe last two years, my final sponsor, uh, got married in Washington and, um, I flew in and, uh, one of her 12 step friends picked me up from the airport and I, um, went on this trademark rant with him. Those who know me know that it's a trademark rant. And he was like, you know, when you've stuck around long enough, you'll realize why we don't do that. And I'm like, and again, <laughs> not to endorse this hierarchy, but, um, oh, how long have you been coming around? Oh, I've been coming around for five years. And at the time, I had been coming around for like seven years. But the assumption that I have this opinion and voice just because I'm naive and haven't stuck around enough was really really frustrating and I think speaks to this larger dynamic in the rooms. Um, so even just acknowledging that there are drawbacks to this system of simple majority rule. So that's my one 
Thank you for indulging me. Um, others is, <laughs> I don't think there's a way around it. I think the first 164 pages of the big book need to be changed. Um, I used to hear all the time in meetings, particularly young people meetings, um, I need a sponsor to help me decipher what this really means in terms of my recovery. Um, but it's, it's not sacred text. Usually, I don't know, at least in the academic world, that's just a sign of bad writing. Um, it, it should be more straightforward. <laughs> it should be more straightforward. It should be more accessible. It should acknowledge non-traditional pathways to recovery. Um, it shouldn't require that much mental gymnastics for people who um, take non-traditional pathways to recovery to feel like they fit in. Um, what also comes to mind, and this is less structural and more cultural, we need to completely do away with the phrase, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Um, in many regions of the country, this is actually read at the beginning of all meetings. It comes from uh, chapter four of the big book, How It Works. And again, I'm speaking primarily to AA, but the meanings that um, eventually led me to read the room, uh, leave the rooms were Narcotics Anonymous. And um, I think... I think a lot of a lot of <laughs> I'm thinking particularly of some friends in NA who will listen to this and be like, yeah, 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 that's AA, not NA. It is NA. Um, this is just the literature I'm most familiar with. Um, that kind of rhetoric is not true in the fentanyl era. Um, people, quote unquote, fail, read, die because these drugs are uh, the drug supply is incredibly unpredictable and lethal. Um, and there's a pervasive stigma against people who use drugs or people who formally use drugs. And that phrase also, in some ways, holds harmless 12-step rooms and harmful 12-step philosophy. Like, if people, if rarely have we seen a person fail who've thoroughly followed our path, that means if they do fail, they clearly just haven't followed our path. And that's really, really, really damaging. And then the last thing I'll say about large-scale structural change, and this is hard because I'm a total hypocrite here. I will never touch general service again in my life with a 10-foot pole. Um, it, is, <laughs> it is so toxic and so harmful and so resistant to change, but we hear this in general in our like political rhetoric um, even just speaking nationally. You know, if young people don't run for office, Nothing's going to change. We need candidates um, who have this uh, open-minded harm reduction mindset to be running for those higher levels of office um, and to be making changes to the extent possible at higher levels, keeping in mind that they are going to get an immense amount of pushback um, and things might not change. But without people being willing to be part of the change and step into those incredibly difficult positions, nothing's going to change. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just add, you know, I agree with Kim on that. And, you know, I've seen kind of anecdotally, you see like the younger generation and the newer people coming into the program are more open-minded about medication for opioid use disorder and harm reduction because of exactly what Kim said. Like, so many of our friends and family are dying. Like, I don't know how many people I've lost during my time in recovery. And yeah, I wish that those people maybe hadn't been dissuaded from using 
medications. And we see that in the research too, that people newer in recovery tend to have more um, positive attitudes towards harm reduction. Um, so I think, I think that is important to get those, those of us, the younger, newer folks involved in service. Another kind of idea that I have that I don't know if it counts as large structural change, but maybe it's, it's midway between small and large is in AA, there's something called the safety card that has, is approved by general service office that, um, you know, can be read groups, groups can choose to read this at the start of their meetings. And it basically, um, you know, ensures safety for people by, um, prohibiting violence or harassment at meetings. And I think we can kind of adapt something, adapt that or adopt something similar, um, that ensures safety of people that are taking medication for opioid use disorder or, you know, trying a different non-abstinent recovery pathway um, from, again, harassment and microaggressions and some type of statement that says you're safe, t- you're safe here. We mm-hmm. want you here. Um, we want to help you even if your path is different than ours. So I think that's something that that I would like to see in the future in 12-step. I love that really sets the context of just this is a safe space for you to navigate whatever you need to navigate. Absolutely. Mm. Well, thank you both again for being here. Is there anything else you want to throw out there, offer, let folks know how to get a hold of you if you want that to be available to them? <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess my just uh, last statement here, and I think we really tried to hammer this home, particularly at the conclusion of the article, is that, you know, the philosophy of harm reduction, as I was introduced to this, is um, my life is worth saving and protecting and fighting for unconditionally, unconditional on whether or not I use drugs. My inherent worth and dignity is worth um, advocating for and prote- uh, and um, fighting for. Um Combine that with the 12-step philosophy of wanting to be of maximum service to the people around us, and um, particularly those who are new into recovery. Those two philosophies, if we were really able to integrate them, could be a powerhouse of change. Um, And I call on and encourage current 12-step members to really take that into consideration. We have shared goals. Imagine what we could do together. That that partnership is valuable, but it is going to take um, some real interrogation, real uh, deconstruction, and real open-mindedness. Those of you who want to contact me, um, best way to reach me is Twitter at Kim underscore Gannon underscore or Kim.Gannon at Yale.edu. I look forward to connecting. Yeah, I think that's a great note to end on. And um, I will just say thank you so much for having us. This has been a great conversation. And I think I also have Twitter at Passman Emily, um, if anyone wants to chat. Thank you for connecting with us, listeners. Our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery. Please join us again next month on Recovery Talk. You can find our episodes on our website, peerrecoverynow.org. That's peerrecoverynow.org, or wherever you find your podcasts. 
The Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. Talk with you next time.